If you would, take your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The practice of recognizing Easter as a special holy day didn't happen in the first century. It came about in the middle of the second century. You may wonder why. I mean, didn't people think that Easter was important? Yes, they did. But the reality is every Sunday is a reminder of Easter. Every Sunday is Resurrection Day. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact, but he did not raise him, if in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See, death is a denial of the goodness of God's created order, and resurrection is the reaffirmation of the goodness of God's created order. It is central to the Christian faith. Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, for one to be a child of God, one must believe in the resurrection. In a book called The Resurrection and Moral Order, and the author writes, it might have been possible before Christ rose from the dead for someone to wonder whether creation was a lost cause. In other words, this, this whole thing, that it's just lost. If the, crea- if the creature consistently acted to uncreate itself, it's a powerful way of describing sin, uncreating, and with itself to uncreate the rest of creation, did this not mean that God's handiwork was flawed beyond hope of repair? It might have been possible before before Christ rose from the dead to answer in good faith, yes, that is, creation is a lost cause. Before God raised Jesus from the dead, the hope that we call Gnostic, the hope for redemption from creation rather than the the redemption of creation, might have appeared to have been the only possible hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. As I said, it is central to the Christian faith. And in trying to prepare a sermon for today, um, I considered a number of passages. I had actually begun two separate sermon outlines um, when I received an email that changed the direction of, of my thinking. Uh, a dear friend and I have been corresponding recently, uh, primarily about books. Um, and what got it started was there's a new translation of the New Testament by David Bentley Hart. And in going back and forth, I mentioned to him that here as a congregation, uh, back in January, we started reading through the Bible together from beginning to end. We're not skipping around. We begin in Genesis and we'll go through to Revelation. And he responded positively and said that he would do the same. And then he wrote, what I have done is read whole books in one or two sittings, and depending on length, maybe three. I was stunned to read through Acts in one sitting, 
to see how much is made of Christ's resurrection from the dead. I thought, that's interesting, and so decided to look into it. And indeed, of all the books in the New Testament, no book talks more about the resurrection than does the book of Acts. In Matthew, about a dozen times, Mark 10, Luke 13, John the most, 18 of the Gospels, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians, which has chapter 15, is, the resurrection is mentioned 13 times, in the book of Galatians, 14 times, Hebrews 17, and then Revelation 14. The book of Acts, 30 times. More than double what we find in most of the New Testament books. Both the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by the same person, Luke. And oftentimes people see the two as pairs, as that they go together. That, by the way, if you take Luke and Acts together, they make up one-fourth of the New Testament. So, pretty significant books in terms of volume. Some have said that in volume one, the Gospel of Luke, we read about the story of Jesus Christ, his birth, his sufferings, his death, and then his triumphant resurrection and ascension. And then in volume two, we read about the life of the church of Jesus Christ from its birth on the day of Pentecost through its sufferings and then its triumphant conquest of Rome some 30 years later. The reality is they're both about Jesus Christ. They're both about his ministry. In the first verse of Acts, Luke writes, in my former book, that is the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all the thing, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The implication is that Luke is about what Jesus began to do and to teach, and the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do through the Spirit in his church. So the ministry of Jesus in Luke is his earthly ministry, but now in the book of Acts it is through the Spirit that through the apostles the gospel is preached. The thing that connects the two books, by the way, is that Luke ends with the ascension and Acts begins with the ascension. That's sort of the hinge uh, on which they turn. But the key to the book of Acts is the resurrection. As I read earlier, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your your faith. And more than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. I want to look at three specific incidents in the book of Acts, which are, in fact, we could call them three sermons, and how the resurrection is the key to each one of these. The first one is found in Acts chapter 2. I hope you have your Bibles open there. And it is when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Um, I don't want to deal with the whole thing. That's a sermon or two in itself. But the part of Peter's sermon in which he deals with the story of Jesus, beginning in verse number 22. And he deals with it in stages. First of all, his life and ministry. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. It's interesting, it's only one verse is given to the life of Jesus, but Peter is talking to people who were there when Jesus was there. They saw the miracles, they saw the things that he did. And so he's just reminding them, this man Jesus, yeah, he was here and he did these things and you were witnesses of that. Verse 23 is his death. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge 
and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus was killed partly because he was handed over to them by Judas, by betrayal, but also by God's purpose. God had a purpose in all of this. It's also partly because with the help of wicked men, they put Jesus to death. And now comes the center of the message, and that is the resurrection, verse, beginning in verse number 24. And by the way, four of these verses come from Psalm 16. This is a very Old Testament sermon, if you wish. We shouldn't be surprised. That's all they had for Scripture. They didn't have the New Testament. They just had the Old Testament. So if you're going to preach about Jesus, look to the Old Testament. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and now this is Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Although men killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead. Something worth noting in verse number 24, the agony of death. The agony there literally means birth pangs. When a woman is giving birth, the pain that she experiences. And what we see is, in fact, in the death of Christ, our birth pains and the resurrection is the birth. There is new life because God has raised Jesus from the dead. And the apostles and many of the people here as well were witnesses to that fact. Then in verses 33 to 36, the exaltation, the result of the resurrection. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He quoted from Psalm 16 earlier. Now he quotes from Psalm 110. And it speaks of the ascension. That, in fact, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. The result, verses 37 to 39, salvation. Jesus has left. What does that mean for those left behind? When the people heard this, they were cut to the, heart, to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. They were deeply convicted of what they had done. They had murdered an innocent man. And they asked Peter what they should do. And the answer is, though we don't normally see it this way, two humiliating acts. 
We usually see them as very Christian acts, but they are acts of humiliation. First of all, they are to repent. They are to change their minds about Jesus. They are to change their attitude toward him. And then they are to be baptized. Well, we may not think either one of these are particularly humiliating. But in the time of Jesus, the only people who ever got baptized were Gentiles. Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. Now you're saying to Jews, you need to act like you're Gentiles and be baptized. You need to repent, you need to change your thinking, and you, in fact, need to submit to the one that you previously rejected. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if they did this, they would receive two wonderful gifts from God, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But how is this all possible? It is because of the resurrection. That is the, center, the central core of Paul, uh, Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. The second incident, the second sermon, is found in chapter 13. If you want to turn there, Acts chapter 13. On his first missionary journey with Barnabas, Paul is traveling, and he comes to Antioch and Pisidia, um, which is about, I think, 100 miles inland. Uh, It's in modern-day Turkey. Anyway, let's begin reading in verse 14. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch, As I said, it's about 100 miles inland. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. This whole atmosphere here, this whole thing is, is completely Jewish. It's the Sabbath day. The venue is there in a synagogue. The readings are from the law and the prophets. It's part of the service. The listeners are the men of Israel. There are some Gentiles present who are God-fearers, who want to convert to Judaism. And at this point, it's time for somebody to preach. And they have these two visitors with them, and they're like, do you have anything you want to say? And so Paul gets up and he preaches. He begins with the Old Testament, the preparation. Look, if you would, in verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt, and with mighty power he led them out of that country. For about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. This is sort of a summary of Jewish history, that God is the God of the people of Israel, He chose the patriarchs for himself. He redeemed his people from Egypt and then he gave them the promised land. And now he moves on. Verse 20. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, king of Kish, the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
it seems that as the Jews have scattered across the Mediterranean basin, at this point, most of them have heard about John the Baptist. Uh, you'll find this time after time as Paul is speaking to the Jews of the diaspora, they've, they've been sca- they have heard of John. And so he mentions that John is the one who prepares the way. But now look at the focus on the death of Jesus, beginning in verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. This is Psalm 16 again. Now David, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. You notice how many times in this brief passage that the resurrection is mentioned, that God has raised him from the dead. He's raised him from the dead in verse number 34 and then in verse number 37. It's a four-point Christian confessional that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, God raised him from the dead, and then he was seen by many witnesses. So in this Jewish service in the synagogue on a Sabbath, Paul preaches, and the center of his message is that God has kept his promises by raising Jesus from the dead. His conclusion is, now there is a choice. In contrast to Pentecost, where the listeners said to Peter, what do we need to do? Paul now tells his listeners what they need to do. Verse 38, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that though Jesus, uh, through Jesus the forgiveness of sins has proclaimed to you, through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if someone told you. This is from Habakkuk chapter 1. You'll notice that when Paul speaks of the Old Testament, this is not something new. This is what they hear every Sabbath. When they go uh, to the synagogue, the Old Testament is read to them. So this they know. When he quotes from the Old Testament, again, these are things that they know. It's not like, boy, I don't ever remember hearing that. They know these passages as well. What he shows is that Jesus is the explanation to all these passages they've been reading all these Sabbaths as they go to synagogue. And so the choice is presented based on what the prophet said, based on the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. The choice is put to them that their sins can be forgiven and they can put their faith in him. The third incident is found in Acts chapter 17, if you want to turn there. And this is perhaps, I think, 
uh, one of the more familiar, if not the most familiar, uh, talks, because I, I don't know that I would put it in the category of sermon. Um, Paul is in Athens. He's had to leave Thessalonica because of persecution, and he's on his way to Corinth, but he stops in Athens. Um, He goes to the synagogue there as well, by the way, and reasons with people. But somehow there are some Gentiles there and, and word has gotten out that this guy is saying some pretty weird stuff, some strange stuff. And so the, this collection, the Areopagites, uh, they are philosophers who get together and, and shoot the breeze, you know, talk about philosophy. Um, they want to hear what he has to say. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we want to know what they mean. So Paul presents them with the gospel message. Of necessity, I think it is limited. I think Paul said more than what we find here in Acts chapter 17. Um, But we get the essence of what he was saying to these people. Beginning at verse number 22 of Acts 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he has made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is to change their thinking. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. One could make the case that this sermon, if we would call it this, is almost the exact opposite of what we saw or heard in Antioch and Pisidia. The setting is not religious as such, it's a philosophical meeting, and I guess by some stretch we would say it's a religious meeting, but it's not something that happens every, you know, like every Monday or every Tuesday. They get together because they want to hear what Paul has to say. Um, Unlike what we see in the synagogue, they don't have a common belief. There's no agreed upon, yes, there is one God, the God of Israel, he is the true God. There is none of that at all. The audience is Gentile. There's no mention of the Old Testament, interestingly enough. Um, What Paul does mention is what some of their poets have said. There's no mention of the promises made to Israel, which is a big part of his sermon to the people in Antioch. There's no mention, specific mention of the Messiah. There's no mention of Jesus by name, interestingly enough. The only thing that is said about Jesus here is that he is going to judge the world with justice. And the proof of this is that God raised him 
from the dead. That's it. That's what he has to say about Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. Now, if you look at these three sermons, um, you see different results. So I mentioned there are at least 30 references in the book of Acts to the resurrection of Jesus. We've looked at three. The day of Pentecost, an open air meeting in which there are thousands of people. Uh, the second is on the Sabbath, that's a Saturday, uh, in Antioch, Pisidia, which is in Gentile territory, but the Jews have gathered uh, to worship. And then a meeting of the Mars Hill group, the Areopagites, uh, council of sorts for a philosophical discussion. And yet in each of these three meetings, each of these three sermons, if you wish, the center of the core of the message is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. I think this should tell us something. That this is in fact the centrality, or it is central to the gospel. We cannot say, hey, I have good news for you. I, I don't want to talk about resurrection, but I have really good news for you. The resurrection is the good news. There were different results to this. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people believed and were baptized. And Antioch, uh, as they were leaving, some of the people said, yeah, why don't you come back next uh, Sabbath and speak to us again? And they did. But there would be opposition after that. In chapter 17, in Athens, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And a few believed. See, resurrection is not something that registered on the radar of Greek philosophy. Um, within the Hebrew system, yes, that God would raise someone from the dead. Um, so we have 3,000 people who are converted. We have some who believe in Antioch. We have a few who believe in Athens. But in each one, the central part of the message is the resurrection. I've told you this several times before, uh, but my mom, when she still had her eyesight, loved to read uh, mysteries, particularly uh, Agatha Christie. But she had this really annoying habit, at least annoying to me. And that is she would read the first chapter to sort of get the layout of what's going on, and then she would go and read the last chapter to find out who did it. That way she wouldn't have to be in suspense and wonder who did it. She already knew, so make it a much easier read for her. Um, she's now, for the most part, lost her eyesight, but still loves books, and so my brother has set up a system where she listens to books uh, through her iPad, and uh, she seems to go through a book a week. So she can't skip to the end. Um, I think for most readers like myself, most serious readers, what she did was just appalling. It's just, Faye, Stop doing that. Stop skipping to the end. I think for the writers in this congregation, I think this would be maddening. Because you're trying to build up a thing to a certain point. You know, but she's already skipped past that and gone to the end. So this building up is gone because she skipped to the end. But what my mom used to do in her reading is precisely what Jesus did on Easter. See, the end of the story for us is resurrection, when Jesus comes back. That's the end of the story. That's the last chapter in the book, if you wish. But Jesus brings it into the middle of the story, when he's raised from the dead. So now we know, oh, 
This is the end of the story. This is how it's going to be. And it is why the resurrection is central to the gospel. We're not going to have to wait to the end to know that there's going to be resurrection. We already know there is going to be resurrection because Jesus was raised from the dead. And in the early church, which is what the book of Acts tells us about, this is repeated over and over and over again. This is the central part of the gospel message. The end of time and the resurrection, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus comes back. He's raised from the dead. People can recognize him, but he is able to do things. He's able to appear. He eats. And yet somehow it seems that he can go through walls. I mean, he appears to the disciples. Um, This is the end of the story in the middle of the book. You know, I I thought we're supposed to build to this big climax. And then you have now Jesus sort of sneaks in. Here it is. This is, this is God's good news. You see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but then Adam and Eve sinned, and things, the project seemed to go off track. But God's purpose all along was for there to be a new heaven and a new earth. That was always the purpose. Creation was just the beginning of that process. And for that to happen, there has to be resurrection. And Jesus tells us that by being raised from the dead. Jesus in his own physical body is the beginning of new creation. That's why he is referred to as the first fruits. He isn't just the first to be raised from the dead because he raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Zib read to us today of, of touching this young girl's hand and raising her from the dead. He's not the first person to be raised from the dead. He is the first person to be resurrected with a new creation body. Paul told the Colossians about this. By the way, Paul had never been to Colossae, had never met the Colossians. And so the book of Colossians is really interesting to me. What do you write to people you've never met? All the other letters he's, he's, he writes to people he knows quite well. What do you say to people you don't know? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. See, the new creation, he's the first one. That's what resurrection is about. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's an amazing passage that God wants to reconcile and he does this through the blood of Jesus. But more than that, Jesus is now the firstborn. He is the beginning of the new creation. By the way, uh, recently I got a text and someone asked me a series of questions uh, about reading the Bible and what translation would I use. And, and then, uh, I don't think I'd ever been asked this before, a person asked, if there's one chapter in the New Testament that you would memorize, what would it be? And it's a really hard question, because if I had my way, I'd memorize the whole Old uh, New Testament. I mean, it, it, it's all great, so uh, how do you pick out one passage? But then the first thought that came to mind was Colossians 1. Colossians 1. 
It is so powerful and that it tells us what Jesus has done in dying for us to reconcile all things to God, but also that he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. He can't die again. He cannot see decay. Death has no power over him, neither does evil. The resurrection is central and it makes sense because Jesus won the victory on the cross. He defeated death. He paid for our sins. And now he's been raised from the dead. So here in closing, I would remind you of what I read at the beginning, what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. By the way, the Corinthians really had a hard time with resurrection. They were Greeks. And Greeks didn't do resurrection. That didn't fit within their worldview. Hebrews, the Jews, that was okay, but it was really hard. And so the most powerful passage we have, chapter 15, which I think is 58 verses long, on the resurrection. This is for Gentiles, for Corinthian Greeks who really struggle with the resurrection. So Paul tells them, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Apparently the Corinthians said, oh yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead, but there really is no resurrection. And Paul's like, no, no. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus was not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Why is the preaching useless? Because the preaching centers on the resurrection. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect that we don't think much about resurrection because in a very strange way, I think we think we're never going to die. But we will, unless the Lord returns before them. But that's okay, because the resurrection is coming. And Jesus is proof of that. He's the first one to be resurrected with a new creation body. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but then he died. This little girl that Jesus healed lived, but then she died. But Jesus will not die again. He has been raised from the dead. And on this Easter Sunday, in a particular way, we remember that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We may have forgotten that it is the center of our message. It is the central, it is the core of the gospel. I suspect that we would like to share the good news with other people, but not talk about the resurrection. Because then, maybe like the people in Athens, they might sneer at us and say, that's, that's ridiculous. But in this past week, we have remembered that Jesus suffered for us. He died for us. He was buried. 
but then you raised him from the dead. The beginning of new creation. The end of the story breaking out in the middle of the story. And we give you thanks. We bow before you humbly and look forward to the time of resurrection. And particularly we think of those who have gone before us. It's not been a year yet since you took Mike. But we will see him again on the day of resurrection. And Alicia and Zeke and others. Help us to remember that the fact that you raised Jesus from the dead is the good news for us. This is the message that we are to share with others. Father, thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.